Section 2 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 2 part two on the origin and significance of geometrical axioms he took from analytical geometry the most general form for this expression that namely which leaves altogether open the kind of measurements by which the position of any point is given then he showed that the kind of free mobility without change of form which belongs to bodies in our space can only exist when certain quantities yielded by the calculation quantities that coincide with gauss's measurement of surface curvature when they are expressed for surfaces have everywhere an equal value for this reason riemann calls these quantities when they have the same value in all directions for a particular spot the measure of curvature of the space at this spot to prevent misunderstanding i will once more observe that this so-called measure of space curvature is a quantity obtained by purely analytical calculation and that its introduction involves no suggestion of relations that would have a meaning only for sense perception the name is merely taken as a short expression for a complex relation from the one case in which the quantity designated admits of sensible representation now whenever the value of this measure of curvature in any space is everywhere zero that space everywhere conforms to the axioms of euclid and it may be called a flat homoloid space in contradistinction to other spaces analytically constructible that may be called curved because their measure of curvature has a value other than zero analytical geometry may be as completely and consistently worked out for such spaces as ordinary geometry can for our actually existing homoloid space if the measure of curvature is positive we have a spherical space in which straightest lines return upon themselves and there are no parallels such a space would like the surface of a sphere be unlimited but not infinitely great a constant negative measure of curvature on the other hand gives pseudo-spherical space in which straightest lines run out to infinity and a pencil of straight lines may be drawn in any flattest surface through any point which does not intersect another given straightest line in that surface beltrami has rendered these last relations imaginable by showing that the points lines and surfaces of a pseudo-spherical space of three dimensions can be so portrayed in the interior of a sphere in euclid's homoloid space that every straight line or flattest surface of the pseudo-spherical space is represented by a straight line 
or a plane, respectively, in the sphere. The surface itself of the sphere corresponds to the infinitely distant points of the pseudo-spherical space, and the different parts of this space, as represented in the sphere, become smaller the nearer they lie to this spherical surface, diminishing more rapidly in the direction of the radii than in that perpendicular to them. Straight lines in the sphere, which only intersect beyond its surface, correspond to straightest lines of the pseudo-spherical space which never intersect. Thus it appeared that space, considered as a region of measurable quantities, does not at all correspond with the most general conception of an aggregate of three dimensions, but involves also special conditions depending on the perfectly free mobility of solid bodies, without change of form to all parts of it, and with all possible changes of direction. And, further, on the special value of the measure of curvature, which, for our actual space, equals, or at least, is not distinguishable from zero. This latter definition is given in the axioms of straight lines and parallels. Whilst Riemann entered upon this new field from the side of the most general and fundamental questions of analytical geometry, I myself arrived at similar conclusions, partly from seeking to represent in space the system of colors involving the comparison of one threefold extended aggregate with another, and partly from inquiries on the origin of our ocular measure for distances in the field of vision. Riemann starts by assuming the above-mentioned algebraical expression, which represents in the most general form the distance between two infinitely near points, and deduces therefrom the conditions of mobility of rigid figures. I, on the other hand, starting from the observed fact that the movement of rigid figures is possible in our space, with the degree of freedom that we know, deduce the necessity of the algebraic expression taken by Riemann as an axiom. The assumptions that I had to make as the basis of the calculation were the following. First, to make algebraical treatment at all possible, it must be assumed that the position of any point A can be determined in relation to certain given figures taken as fixed bases by measurement of some kind of magnitudes as lines, angles between lines, angles between surfaces, and so forth. The measurements necessary for determining the position of A are known as its coordinates. In general, the number of coordinates necessary for the complete determination of the position of a point marks the number of the dimensions of the space in question. It is further assumed that with the movement of the point A, the magnitudes used as coordinates vary continuously. Secondly, the definition of a solid body or rigid system of points must be made in such a way as to admit of magnitudes being compared by congruence. 
as we must not at this stage assume any special methods for the measurement of magnitudes our definition can in the first instance run only as follows between the coordinates of any two points belonging to a solid body there must be an equation which however the body is moved expresses a constant spatial relation proving at last to be the distance between the two points and which is the same for congruent pairs of points that is to say such pairs as can be made successively to coincide in space with the same fixed pair of points however indeterminate in appearance this definition involves most important consequences because with increase in the number of points the number of equations increases much more quickly than the number of coordinates which they determine five points a b c d and e give ten different pairs of points a b a c a d a e b c b d b e c d c e and d e and therefore ten equations involving in space of three dimensions fifteen variable coordinates but of these fifteen six must remain arbitrary if the system of five points is to admit of free movement and rotation and thus the ten equations can determine only nine coordinates as functions of the six variables with six points we obtain fifteen equations for twelve quantities with seven points twenty-one equations for fifteen and so on now from n independent equations we can determine n contained quantities and if we have more than n equations the superfluous ones must be deducible from the first n hence it follows that the equations which subsist between the coordinates of each pair of points of a solid body must have a special character seeing that when in space of three dimensions they are satisfied for nine pairs of points as formed out of any five points the equation for the tenth pair follows by logical consequence thus our assumption for the definition of solidity becomes quite sufficient to determine the kind of equations holding between the coordinates of two points rigidly connected thirdly the calculation must further be based on the fact of a peculiar circumstance in the movement of solid bodies a fact so familiar to us but for this inquiry might never have been thought of as something that needed not be when in our space of three dimensions two points of a solid body are kept fixed its movements are limited to rotations around the straight line connecting them if we turn it completely round once it again occupies exactly the position it had at first this fact that rotation in one direction always brings a solid body back into its original position needs special mention a system of geometry is possible without it this is most easily seen in the geometry of a plane 
suppose that with every rotation of a plane figure its linear dimensions increased in proportion to the angle of rotation the figure after one full rotation through three hundred sixty degrees would no longer coincide with itself as originally but any second figure that was congruent with the first in its original position might be made to coincide with it in its second position by being also turned through three hundred sixty degrees a consistent system of geometry would be possible upon this supposition which does not come under riemann's formula on the other hand i have shown that the three assumptions taken together form a sufficient basis for the starting point of riemann's investigations and thence for all his further results relating to the distinction of different spaces according to their measure of curvature it still remained to be seen whether the laws of motion as dependent on moving forces could also be consistently transferred to spherical or pseudo-spherical space this investigation has been carried out by professor lipschitz of bonn it is found that the comprehensive expression for all the laws of dynamics hamilton's principle may be directly transferred to spaces of which the measure of curvature is other than zero accordingly in this respect also the disparate systems of geometry lead to no contradiction we have now to seek an explanation of the special characteristics of our own flat space since it appears that they are not implied in the general notion of an extended quantity of three dimensions and of the free mobility of bounded figures therein necessities of thought such as are involved in the conception of such a variety and its measurability or from the most general of all ideas of a solid figure contained in it and of its free mobility they undoubtedly are not let us then examine the opposite assumption as to their origin being empirical and see if they can be inferred from facts of experience and so established or if when tested by experience they are perhaps to be rejected if they are of empirical origin we must be able to represent to ourselves connected series of facts indicating a different value for the measure of curvature from that of euclid's flat space but if we can imagine such spaces of other sorts it cannot be maintained that the axioms of geometry are necessary consequences of an a priori transcendental form of intuition as kant thought the distinction between spherical pseudospherical and euclid's geometry depends as was above observed on the value of a certain constant called by riemann the measure of curvature of the space in question the value must be zero for euclid's axioms to hold good if it were not zero the sum of the angles of a large triangle would differ from that of the angles of a small one being larger in spherical smaller in pseudo-spherical space 
again the geometrical similarity of large and small solids or figures is possible only in euclid's space all systems of practical mensuration that have been used for the angles of large rectilinear triangles and especially all systems of astronomical measurement which make the parallax of the immeasurably distant fixed stars equal to zero in pseudospherical space the parallax even of infinitely distant points would be positive confirm empirically the axiom of parallels and show the measure of curvature of our space thus far to be indistinguishable from zero it remains however a question as riemann observed whether the result might not be different if we could use other than our limited baselines the greatest of which is the major axis of the earth's orbit meanwhile we must not forget that all geometrical measurements rest ultimately upon the principle of congruence we measure the distance between points by applying to them the compass rule or chain we measure angles by bringing the divided circle or theodolite to the vertex of the angle we also determine straight lines by the path of rays of light which in our experience is rectilinear but that light travels in shortest lines as long as it continues in a medium of constant refraction would be equally true in space of a different measure of curvature thus all our geometrical measurements depend upon our instruments being really as we consider them invariable in form or at least on their undergoing no other than the small changes we know of as arising from variation of temperature or from gravity acting differently at different places in measuring we only employ the best and surest means we know of to determine what we otherwise are in the habit of making out by sight and touch or by pacing here our own body with its organs is the instrument we carry around in space now it is the hand now the leg that serves for a compass or the eye turning in all directions is our theodolite for measuring arcs and angles in the visual field every comparative estimate of magnitude or measurement of their special relations proceeds therefore upon a supposition as to the behavior of certain physical things either the human body or other instruments employed the supposition may be in the highest degree probable and in closest harmony with all other physical relations known to us but yet it passes beyond the scope of pure space intuition it is in fact possible to imagine conditions for bodies apparently solid such that the measurements in euclid space become what they would be in spherical or pseudospherical space let me first remind the reader that if all the linear dimensions of other bodies and our own at the same time were diminished or increased in like proportion as for instance to half or double their size we should with our means of space perception be utterly unaware of the change 
this would also be the case if the distension or contraction were different in different directions provided that our own body changed in the same manner and further that a body in rotating assumed at every moment without suffering or exerting mechanical resistance the amount of dilatation in its different dimensions corresponding to its position at the time think of the image of the world in a convex mirror the common silvered globes set up in gardens give the essential figures only distorted by some optical irregularities a well-made convex mirror of moderate aperture represents the objects in front of it as apparently solid and in fixed position behind its surface but the images of the distant horizon and of the sun in the sky lie behind the mirror at a limited distance equal to its focal length between these and the surface of the mirror are found the images of all other objects before it but the images are diminished and flattened in proportion to the distance of their objects from the mirror the flattening or decrease in the third dimension is relatively greater than the decrease of the surface dimensions yet every straight line or every plane in the outer world is represented by a straight line or a plane in the image the image of a man measuring with a rule a straight line from the mirror would contract more and more the farther he went but with his shrunken rule the man in the image would count out exactly the same number of centimeters as the real man and in general all geometrical measurements of lines or angles made with regularly varying images of real instruments would yield exactly the same results as in the outer world all congruent bodies would coincide on being applied to one another in the mirror as in the outer world all lines of sight in the outer world would be represented by straight lines of sight in the mirror in short i do not see how men in the mirror are to discover that their bodies are not rigid solids and their experiences good examples of the correctness of euclid's axioms but if they could look out upon our world as we can look into theirs without overstepping the boundary they must declare it to be a picture in a spherical mirror and would speak of us just as we speak of them and if two inhabitants of the different worlds could communicate with one another neither as far as i can see would be able to convince the other that he had the true the other the distorted relations indeed i cannot see that such a question would have any meaning at all so long as the mechanical considerations are not mixed up with it now Beltrami's representation of pseudospherical space in a sphere of Euclid space is quite similar except that the background is not a plane as in the convex mirror but the surface of a sphere and that the proportion in which the images as they approach the spherical surface contract has a different mathematical expression if we imagine then conversely that in the sphere for the interior of which euclid's axioms hold good moving bodies contract as they depart from the centre like the images in a convex mirror and in such a way that their representatives 
and pseudo-spherical space retain their dimensions unchanged, observers whose bodies were regularly subjected to the same change would obtain the same results from the geometrical measurements they could make as if they lived in pseudo-spherical space. We can even go a step further and infer how the objects in a pseudo-spherical world, were it possible to enter one, would appear to an observer whose eye measure and experiences of space had been gained like ours in Euclid's space. Such an observer would continue to look upon rays of light or the lines of vision as straight lines, such as are met with in flat space, and as they really are in the spherical representation of pseudo-spherical space. The visual image of the objects in pseudo-spherical space would thus make the same impression upon him as if he were at the center of Beltrami's sphere. He would think he saw the most remote objects round about him at a finite distance, let us suppose a hundred feet off, but as he approached these distant objects they would dilate before him, though more in the third dimension than superficially while behind him they would contract. He would know that his eye judged wrongly. If he saw two straight lines, which in his estimate ran parallel for the hundred feet to his world's end, he would find upon following them that the further he advanced, the more they diverged, because of the dilatation of all the objects to which he approached. On the other hand, behind him, their distance would seem to diminish, so that as he advanced they would appear always to diverge more and more. But two straight lines, which from his first position seem to converge to one in the same point of the background, a hundred feet distant, would continue to do this however far he went, and he would never reach their point of intersection. Now we can obtain exactly similar images of our real world if we look through a large convex lens of corresponding negative focal length, or even through a pair of convex spectacles if ground somewhat prismatically to resemble pieces of one continuous larger lens. With these, like the convex mirror, we see remote objects as if nearer to us, the most remote appearing to be no further distance than the focus of the lens. In going about with this lens before the eyes, we find that the objects we approach dilate exactly in the same manner I have described for pseudo-spherical space. Now anyone using a lens, were it even so strong as to have a focal length of only sixty inches, to say nothing of a hundred feet, would perhaps observe for the first moment that he saw objects brought nearer but after going about a little the illusion would vanish, and in spite of the false images he would judge of the distances rightly. We have every reason to suppose that what happens in a few hours to anyone beginning to wear spectacles would soon enough be experienced in pseudo-spherical space. In short, pseudo-spherical space would not seem to us very strange, comparatively speaking, we should only at first be subject to illusions in measuring by eye the size and distance of the more remote objects. 
there would be illusions of an opposite description if with eyes practised to measure in euclid's space we entered a spherical space of three dimensions we should suppose the more distant objects to be more remote and larger than they are and should find on approaching them that we reach them more quickly than we had expected from their appearance but we should also see before us objects that we can fixate only with diverging lines of sight namely all those at a greater distance from us than the quadrant of a great circle such an aspect of things would hardly strike us very extraordinary for we can have it even as things are if we place before the eyes a slightly prismatic glass with the thicker side toward the nose the eyes must then become divergent to take in distant objects this excites a certain feeling of unwanted strain in the eyes but does not perceptibly change the appearance of the objects thus seen the strangest sight however in the spherical world would be the back of our own head in which all visual lines not stopped by other objects would meet again and which must fill the extreme background of the whole perspective picture at the same time it must be noted that as a small elastic flat disc say of india rubber can only be fitted to a slightly curved spherical surface with relative contraction of its border and distension of its centre so our bodies developed in euclid's flat space could not pass into curved space without undergoing similar distensions and contractions of their parts their coherence being of course maintained only in so far as their elasticity permitted their bending without breaking the kind of distension must be the same as in passing from a small body imagined at the centre of beltrami's sphere to its pseudo-spherical or spherical representation for such passage to appear possible it will always have to be assumed that the body is sufficiently elastic and small in comparison with the real or imaginary radius of curvature of the curved space into which it is to pass these remarks will suffice to show the way in which we can infer from the known laws of our sensible perceptions the series of sensible impressions which a spherical or pseudo-spherical world would give us if it existed in doing so we nowhere meet with inconsistency or impossibility any more than in the calculation of its metrical proportions we can represent to ourselves the look of a pseudo-spherical world in all directions just as we can develop the conception of it therefore it cannot be allowed that the axioms of our geometry depend on the native form of our perceptive faculty or are in any way connected with it it is different with the three dimensions of space as all our means of sense perception extend only to space of three dimensions and a fourth is not merely a modification of what we have but something perfectly new we find ourselves by reason of our bodily organization quite unable to represent a fourth dimension in conclusion i would again urge that the axioms of geometry are not propositions pertaining only to the pure doctrine of space as i said before 
they are concerned with quantity. We can speak of quantities only when we know of some way by which we can compare, divide, and measure them. All space measurements, and therefore in general all ideas of quantities applied to space, assume the possibility of figures moving without change of form or size. It is true we are accustomed in geometry to call such figures purely geometrical solids, surfaces, angles, and lines, because we abstract from all the other distinctions, physical and chemical, of natural bodies. But yet one physical quality, rigidity, is retained. Now we have no other mark of rigidity of bodies or figures but congruence. Whenever they are applied to one another at any time or place, and after any revolution. We cannot, however, decide by pure geometry and without mechanical considerations whether the coinciding bodies may not both have varied in the same sense. If it were useful for any purpose, we might with perfect consistency look upon the space in which we live as the apparent space behind a convex mirror with its shortened and contracted background. Or we might consider a bounded sphere of our space, beyond the limits of which we perceive nothing further as infinite pseudo-spherical space. Only then we should have to ascribe to the bodies which appear to us to be solid, and to have our own body at the same time, corresponding distensions and contractions, and we should have to change our system of mechanical principles entirely. For even the proposition that every point in motion, if acted upon by no force, continues to move with unchanged velocity in a straight line, is not adapted to the image of the world in the convex mirror. The path would indeed be straight, but the velocity would depend upon the place. Thus the axioms of geometry are not concerned with space relations only, but also at the same time with the mechanical deportment of solidest bodies in motion. The notion of a rigid geometrical figure might indeed be conceived as transcendental in Kant's sense, namely as formed independently of actual experience, which need not exactly correspond therewith any more than natural bodies do ever in fact correspond exactly to the abstract notion we have obtained of them by induction. Taking the notion of rigidity thus as a mere ideal, a strict Kantian might certainly look upon the geometrical axioms as propositions given a priori by transcendental intuition, which no experience could either confirm or refute, because it first must be decided by them whether any natural bodies can be considered as rigid. But then we should have to maintain that the axioms of geometry are not synthetic propositions, as Kant held them. They would merely define what qualities and deportment a body must have to be recognized as rigid. But if to the geometrical axioms we add propositions relating to the mechanical properties of natural bodies, were it only the axiom of inertia, or the single proposition that the mechanical and physical properties of bodies and their mutual reactions are, other circumstances remaining the same, independent of place, 
such a system of propositions has a real import which can be confirmed or refuted by experience but just for the same reason can also be gained by experience the mechanical axiom just cited is in fact of the utmost importance for the whole system of our mechanical and physical conceptions that rigid solids as we call them which are really nothing else than elastic solids of great resistance retain the same form in every part of space if no external force affects them is a single case falling under the general principle in conclusion i do not of course maintain that mankind first arrived at space intuitions in agreement with the axioms of euclid by any carefully executed systems of exact measurement it was rather a succession of everyday experiences especially the perception of the geometrical similarity of great and small bodies only possible in flat space that led to the rejection as impossible of every geometrical representation at variance with this fact for this no knowledge of the necessary logical connection between the observed fact of geometrical similarity and the axioms was needed but only an intuitive apprehension of the typical relations between lines planes angles etc obtained by numerous and attentive observations an intuition of the kind the artist possesses of the objects he is to represent and by means of which he decides with certainty and accuracy whether a new combination which he tries will correspond or not with their nature it is true that we have no word but intuition to mark this but it is knowledge empirically gained by the aggregation and reinforcement of similar recurrent impressions in memory and not a transcendental form given before experience that other such empirical intuitions of fixed typical relations when not clearly comprehended have frequently enough been taken by metaphysicians for a priori principles is a point on which i need not insist to sum up the final outcome of the whole inquiry may be thus expressed one the axioms of geometry taken by themselves out of all connection with mechanical propositions represents no relations of real things when thus isolated if we regard them with kant as forms of intuition transcendentally given they constitute a form into which any empirical content whatever will fit and which therefore does not in any way limit or determine beforehand the nature of the content this is true however not only of euclid's axioms but also of the axioms of spherical and pseudo-spherical geometry two as soon as certain principles of mechanics are conjoined with the axioms of geometry we obtain a system of propositions which has real import and which can be verified or overturned by empirical observations just as it can be inferred from experience if such a system were to be taken as a transcendental form of intuition and thought there must be assumed a pre-established harmony between form and reality end of section two chapter two